Good, bright, and early morning, everyone. How's everyone doing on the fourth week of, or fourth day of pain week? A couple woos. Everyone else good? All right. <clears throat> well, thank you for coming. This is course IPPS-01, the painful uterus and the brain. Our faculty today, excuse me, our faculty today is Dr. Susie Asani, and she is an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Go Wolverines. We were talking about the love for the, uh, the maize and blue there. So please help me welcome our distinguished speaker this morning. Thank you. Well, good morning. Thank you so much. Um, on behalf of the International Pelvic Pain Society, I really want to thank Pain Week and its organizers for having us um, do a series of sessions today on um, gynecologic pain conditions. It truly is an honor to be um, part of this really exciting conference. So I know that this is a really diverse group of speakers, and my guess is that not many of you are gynecologists. Are there any gynecologists in the audience? Well, you guys are with us. <laughs> a few, okay, and uh, internal medicine, family medicine, great. Uh, physical therapy, anesthesia. What are the other types of things that are uh, practitioners covered here? Pharmacists, great. PM&R, great. Pain specialists, okay, great. Urology, fantastic. Okay, well, I tried to make my um, lecture sort of speak to any um, practitioner, whether it's uh, someone that's directed caring for patients or a pharmacist or a physical therapist, just to get an overview of the types of conditions that we see and treat um, in women that have um, chronic pelvic pain and painful menstrual periods. Um, so uh, this, this is me, and these are my disclosures. So the objectives today are to discuss first the prevalence and impact of pelvic pain in women, and then I'd like to distinguish um, dysmenorrhea from chronic pelvic pain and sort of let you know how we um, think about those two conditions separately but overlapping. Um, I'll briefly review the potential etiologies and treatments of both dysmenorrhea and chronic pelvic pain, and then I'd like to focus a little bit about the evidence that dysmenorrhea and pelvic pain may be central pain disorders. I know that the concept of central pain disorders is certainly not new to an audience like this, but is actually quite novel to a gynecology audience, and so um, we've been doing a lot of work to, to uh, find evidence to support that. And then finally, we'll discuss briefly the clinical approach to integrate the treatment of central sensitization in a gynecology population to enhance patient care. So I'm going to start out with a clinical case, and some of my other colleagues today are going to use an interactive tool so that you guys can put in your answers. I'm not doing that, so this is, you don't have to raise your hand. This really is just to sort of uh, prompt some, um, some thought about whether or not you've seen patients like this. So this patient is a typical patient that maybe any of us would see. She's a 23-year-old G0, means she's never been pregnant, female that presents to your office with complaints of progressively worsening pelvic pain. She has no medical problems. She's never had any surgery. She says that she has crampy pain with her menstrual period since menarche or since the first time that she had her menses and now her pain starts two to three days before her cycle begins and it seems to be lasting longer and longer and getting more painful. She's always taken NSAIDs but these are no longer helpful. She says that her pain is in her pelvis and spreads down to her thighs and low back. She can't sleep, she's fatigued and she's crying and frustrated. So the questions that I'd like you guys to think about is, do you see these types of patients in your practice? And how do you, what factors would you need to consider when evaluating this patient? How, what would you do with this patient? And then when would you refer her to a gynecologist? So we'll hopefully go through all of that. 
So the first point that I'd like to make is chronic pelvic pain is more prevalent in women than it is in men. And when you look at epidemiologic studies that look at the prevalence of pain disorders, um, a wide variety of pain disorders, it's almost quite consistent that almost all pain disorders are about uh, one and a half to two times more prevalent in uh, uh, women versus men. And uh, dysmenorrhea is probably one of the most common conditions that affects women. Dysmenorrhea, uh, we define as having painful menstrual cramps of uterine origin, but the key clinical factor that distinguishes dysmenorrhea from chronic pelvic pain is that the pain is limited to the time of menstrual bleeding. Whereas chronic pelvic pain we define as non-cyclic pain. Um, generally, it's defined by ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as having six or more months duration that localizes basically anywhere in the pelvis and is of sufficient severity to cause functional disability or lead to medical care. Now, certainly, um, women that have chronic pelvic pain will often have their pain become worse during their time of their menses, but the key clinical factor is that they experience some pain at times when they're not on their menstrual cycle, whereas dysmenorrhea is pain that's almost entirely limited to when they're bleeding or shortly before and after. So dysmenorrhea is classified as either primary or secondary. And unlike most medical conditions, when we consider primary to be something of longer duration or happen ever since the first time of something, whereas secondary is something that occurs later in life, primary and secondary, when we define that in dysmenorrhea, is actually um, defined based on pathology. So primary dysmenorrhea is defined as painful periods without identifiable pelvic pathology, whereas secondary dysmenorrhea is painful periods periods with identifiable pathology. So the types of conditions that can cause um, secondary dysmenorrhea include things like endometriosis, adenomyosis, uterine fibroids, pelvic adhesions. But I also want to point out that these are also the same types of conditions that can also lead a woman to developing chronic daily pelvic pain. So the epidemiology is that this is actually incredibly prevalent. Um, Dysmenorrhea is reported anywhere between 45 to 90% of menstruating women and is severe enough to cause disability in up to a quarter of women. Um, when you think about chronic pelvic pain, nearly a quarter of women between the ages of 18 and 50 um, have been reported to have pelvic pain lasting for at least six months. And this, all these conditions are probably underreported. So when you look at an epidemiologic study coming out of the United Kingdom, only 25% of women that were surveyed had actually sought medical evaluation for their pain in the last year. So this is an incredibly important condition um, in our female patients. It is the primary indication for nearly 10% of outpatient gynecology clinic visits. It represents 12% of the indications for hysterectomy and nearly half of the time uh, for the reasons that we do diagnostic laparoscopy. These women suffer tremendously. They use three times more medications, have four times more surgery, are five times more likely to have hysterectomy. And when you look at these numbers here, they clearly have a decreased quality of life with nearly 26% of these women reporting that they stay in bed for at least one day a month um, because of their pain. And it's obviously incredibly frustrating for patients, but at least when we train gynecologists, our residents, and our medical students as well, this is often what we look like as well. And, and I would say that there are a lot of reasons, and, and this is true for any type of chronic pain condition, but um, at least within gynecology, I would say that we are very poorly trained in the care of these women, and when you don't have the right tools to help these women and give them some hope that their quality of life will improve, they become a very difficult patient population to take care of. Um, and there are many challenges in pelvic pain that are somewhat unique to pelvic pain. Um, one of the biggest challenges is that pelvic pain is a symptom. It is not a disease 
process that is unique in its etiology. It has multifocal, multifactorial etiology, and the pre precise diagnosis is often elusive. So if you see a gynecologist, they're going to probably tell you you have endometriosis. If you see a gastroenterologist, you're going to have irritable bowel syndrome. If you see a, a GU doctor, you're going to have uh, painful bladder syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. So depending on who you see, the same types of symptoms will give you a new diagnosis depending on the specialist. And then, of course, like many other chronic pain conditions, there's a lack of effective and durable treatments. And um, as I said, at least in gynecology, we have very inadequate training in pain management and evaluation. So there are many etiologies that can cause pain, and I'm certainly not going to go through these um, all in detail. But what I do want to point out is that pain in the pelvis can be caused by any one of the organ systems within the pelvis. So as gynecologists, we'll often treat the gynecologic etiologies with endometriosis, adenomyosis being some of the most common conditions. Uh, urologists will see painful bladder syndrome, but also chronic uh, recurrent urinary tract infections, bladder stones. There are multiple functional bowel disorders that can cause chronic abdominal pain. And then, of course, um, one thing that's under-recognized is a significant number of musculoskeletal and neurologic etiologies, in, uh, including uh, myofascial pain. And so we're going to go back to this patient, uh, the 23-year-old that's had progressively worsening painful periods. And so you do her exam and some labs. You order a pregnancy test and it's negative, a urinalysis is negative. On her exam, she has diffuse lower abdominal tenderness. Her uterus is normal in size, but it's tender. She doesn't specifically have cervical motion tenderness or abnormal discharge that would point to pelvic inflammatory disease, but she just is globally tender, and she's no palpable adnexal masses. So I think it would be reasonable in a patient like this to get a pelvic ultrasound, um, and she has normal appearing uterus and ovaries. So what would you recommend? Would you reassure her, uh, like many patients are done, that menstrual pain is normal and that she'll get better and maybe she'll have a baby and then her pain will get better after she has a baby? We've heard that a lot. Uh, maybe give her an oral contraceptive pill to suppress her menses or maybe prescribe a narcotic like hydrocodone for pain management. Or if you're not a gynecologist, would you just refer her directly to a gynecologist for laparoscopy? So what I would say, and this certainly isn't published anywhere, but I think this is fairly standard of care, is um, for most patients that have a gynecologic problem, beginning with a pelvic exam and an ultrasound is a very reasonable place to start. And if a patient has significant pelvic pathology, and these cutoffs aren't um, specific or, or validated, but if their uterus is enlarged, maybe greater than 12 centimeters, or they have a dominant fibroid that's bigger than 5 or a persistent ovarian cyst that's greater than five centimeters or a rectovaginal nodule. These are the patients that I would say would be absolutely reasonable to send them directly to a gynecologist because they might have some anatomic pathology that we could address um, immediately. And it's not that we wouldn't necessarily offer these patients medical therapy, but I think um, as, a, as a physician that isn't primarily treating gynecologic disease, I think it's reasonable to send these patients directly. But for those patients that don't fit that criteria, like this patient, that has relatively normal exam findings. Um, medical therapy, empiric medical therapy, is absolutely appropriate. And so starting a patient on oral contraceptive pills to suppress her menses because NSAIDs are no longer helpful, I would say would be very appropriate um, first-line therapy. And in those cases when that patient doesn't improve, then I would refer to a gynecologist. So the treatment of dysmenorrhea is fairly standard. NSAIDs um, are widely available, and they can be extremely effective for dysmenorrhea. 
Um, I would recommend scheduled dosing. Um, and for most of these women, I would say one of the most critical and helpful things is to begin the NSAID before the onset of their pain and or before the onset of their bleeding and to take it regularly. And there's also actually evidence to suggest that using scheduled NSAIDs before the onset of menses not only improves pain, but actually decreases the amount of menstrual blood flow. So it can actually lighten the period as well. Um, but if that doesn't work, then menstru menstrual suppression with a hormonal uh, method is the first-line treatment. The goal is to suppress the menses, and this can be done for very long periods of time. Patients always um, wonder, is that safe for me to be on a birth control for so long? And as long as they don't have a contraindication to oral contraceptive pills, it's, it's incredibly safe for them to be on it for prolonged periods of time. Other than providing contraception, which is reversible, um, that is the second benefit. So the methods can be systemic hormones, either orals, um, injections, patches, vaginal rings. Um, these all suppress ovulation, thin out the endometrium, as well as decrease the volume of uh, menstrual blood flow. Um, there is a low risk of uh, deep venous thrombosis with estrogen-containing methods. So if a patient has a higher-than-average risk for that or if has had one before, then we would certainly recommend um, progestin-only methods. Patients can have some nausea and bloating. Uh, weight gain is potentially an issue on progestin-only methods, but there's actually never been any strong epidemiologic data to support weight gain with use of uh, combined estrogen-progestin pills. So that's uh, def uh, definitely a common myth. Um, Levonorgestrel IUDs are excellent methods to uh, treat uh, dysmenorrhea. Um, these also thin out the endometrium and decrease the volume of menstrual blood flow and uterine contractions. There is a low risk of perforation and uh, ovarian cysts, um, but it certainly is a good option for many women. And the one thing that I would, a take-home message I would like you to go home with is that one thing that should not be offered at this stage is a GNRH agonist, such as Lupron. Um, for many reasons, um, other, uh, in addition to it being an incredibly expensive medication with more side effects, um, there isn't a lot of, there isn't really much evidence to suggest that this is um, an important um, and advantageous way over other methods of hormonal suppression, and I would definitely refer to a gynecologist before using uh, Lupron. So endometriosis is probably the most common condition that we look for in, as gynecologists um, in patients that have painful periods or chronic pelvic pain. And endometriosis is defined as the presence of endometrial glands and stroma outside of the endometrial cavity and musculature. It is actually quite prevalent amongst all reproductive age women with and without symptoms. We estimate it to occur in about 10% of women. But amongst women that have subfertility or infertility, it's in about 30% of women. And then amongst women that have chronic pelvic pain, nearly 60% of women are found to have endometriosis. And it can happen in women as young as adolescents. So even amongst adolescents with painful periods and chronic pain, if you take them for, to laparoscopy, approximately 50% will have uh, visibly diagnosed endometriosis. So the common symptoms of endometriosis is actually quite varied. Uh, amongst women that have endo, about 10% actually don't have symptoms at all. And patients can have a range of symptoms, not all of them, or a combination of any of them. So chronic uh, non-menstrual pain is very common. Dysmenorrhea or painful periods is common. Dyspareunia, which is painful intercourse, is common. Dyskesia, painful bowel movements, is common in infertility. And what this publication shows that was published quite some time ago in 2008 is sort of the overlapping prevalence of all the different types of symptoms 
symptoms that patients can have. And so the most common way that women will present is having all symptoms, pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, and dyspareunia. But if you're missing one of those symptoms, it doesn't exclude the possibility of endometriosis because any given patient can have any given combination. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that having bowel or urinary symptoms in the presence of endometriosis does not predict advanced endometriosis. And so what we'll often see in patients is they come in with a known history of endometriosis and they say, well, I have um, pain with my bowel movements. I'm worried that I have invasive endometriosis into my bowel or I have urinary frequency and urgency. And what this study showed is that there's no difference in the frequency of dysmenorrhea, pain, constipation, or any of these um, uh, somatic, uh, any of these symptoms in either mild disease versus uh, severe disease. So just because you have those symptoms, you're actually probably more likely to still just have um, mild disease um, if you don't have any other imaging findings, and that those symptoms probably represent more functional um, changes in your, in your um, bowel and bladder symptoms or overlapping pain conditions such as painful bladder symptom and IBS and doesn't necessarily represent invasive endometriosis into those organs. The other thing that this um, pointed out is that uh, infertility, amongst the different things, infertility is actually more common in patients that have advanced disease, and that's the one place where you see a difference uh, between that, as well as dyspruneia or pain with um, uh, 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 intercourse. So the next question that I would say, so how should the diagnosis of endometriosis be made? So if a patient um, is on a birth control pill and her, her periods are still not um, well controlled, when do you decide when to take a patient to laparoscopy? Um, and we'll get to that in a bit. But the diagnosis is, is it made by diagnostic laparoscopy and visual inspection, diagnostic laparoscopy and excisional biopsy? Would you give her Lupron and see if her pain is better or any of the above? And hopefully, I think I've probably already explained this, is that surgical biopsy is required for a definitive diagnosis of endometriosis. And our ability to look at a lesion and say that it's accurately endometriosis um, is actually only on the order of about 45 to, uh, to 50%. And so I would strongly encourage for any of those that are referring to gynecologists um, for the surgery, that they're experienced in doing the surgery because not all gynecologists are comfortable doing excisional biopsy and that really is critical for the diagnosis of this condition. Um, and then as I pointed to before, Lupron does not diagnose endometriosis. This study was published, one of the very first randomized controlled trials, endometriosis and Lupron, and it wasn't designed to for this specific question, but what they did was an RCT of 95 women gave them either Lupron or placebo, and at pain relief at three months, 81% of the patients on Lupron had pain relief compared to 40% of the placebo-treated group, but then everybody got a laparoscopy, and the critical thing that they found was is that the likelihood of having endometriosis um, was not increased um, if you had gotten better with Lupron. And patients that had no endometriosis were just as likely to get better on Lupron than those patients that did. So the positive response to Lupron, off, although uh, gynecologists also often use it as a diagnostic marker for endometriosis, is actually not accurate. So treatment options are either surgical or medical. Uh, First-line treatments are considered um, uh, either combine estrogen and progesterone contraceptive, or one of our favorites is norethindrone, which is a uh, progestin. These can be used either cyclically, and progestins are used con uh, continuously. Second-line therapies could be Lupron with ADBAC, medroxyprogesterone, and third-line therapies.
are rarely used would be something like a low-dose denosol. And all of these methods induce atrophy of both the eutopic as well as ectopic endometrium. They decrease prostaglandin production, which can be associated with uterine contractions. They reduce the inflammatory status, but it's really, really critical to remind patients that these medications are not cytoreductive. So they suppress the lesions, but they do not eliminate the lesions. And the reason that this is important to know is, is that this is considered a chronic disease that needs long-term therapy and that we don't have a cure for it. And so as long as you're on the medication and you respond well, then you should continue on the medication. And that recurrent symptoms are extremely common and almost inevitable um, if you discontinue the medication. So all of these um, treatments are equally effective in most head-to-head clinical trials. And so there is no one magic pill or magic injection that works best for most patients. So on average, about 70 to 85% of users report improvement in their symptoms. And so we'll often recommend choosing the treatment based on patient preference, cost, and side effect. And so if a patient's never tried anything, most of us will end up using something like a monophasic um, average dose uh, contraceptive pill. But if patients have said, well, I've tried that and I had nausea, then you know, try a different progestin or progestin-only method. But there isn't any specific hormone method that is consistently better for pain relief. So in one randomized control trial of cyclic OCPs, so the use of OCPs where you have three weeks of active pill and one week of placebo, um, showed a mean reduction in menstrual pain of, of approximately 40%. So we do know that this is can be a very effective treatment for dysmenorrhea. But this patient, um, this same patient said that she's tolerated this monophasic pill without significant effect, but her pain is no longer controlled. So what are her options if she wants to continue the use of an estrogen or progestin therapy? Switch maybe to a less androgenic pill, switch to a more progestin-dominant pill, switch to a different method entirely, such as a NuvaRing, or maybe she could use the same pill, but in a monophasic way and use it continuously. And this is something that we'll commonly see, and it might seem quite obvious to a gynecologist, but the first thing that I would say in a patient that has pain on a birth control pill that's using it in the traditional method where she'll have a menses every month is eliminate the menses. Just take that monophasic pill and give it to her continuously such that she doesn't have a period at all. And in this small um, observational study, we've actually not studied this formally in many uh, ways, but this was a group of 50 women with a history of surgically documented endometriosis that when they switched from a cyclic pill to a monophasic pill, they had a significant reduction in their dysmenorrhea score. And most patients actually tolerate this quite well. So the most common side effect of using a continuous pill is breakthrough bleeding. Patients report that they spot or bleed at times that are unscheduled. But that doesn't happen to everybody. About 38% of women will stay amenorrheic, and as long as they're amenorrheic and not having any side effects, just continue on that dose. It is not medically necessary to have a menses if you are on medical suppression, and most women are very sort of anxious about that and say, well, isn't it normal? Don't I need to shed the period? And what you explain to them is, is that what the pill is doing is that it's actually thinning out the lining of the period, so there's no uh, endometrium that actually needs to shed. Um, however, 
Um, between 20, 26% of women report consistent breakthrough bleeding and 36% report some spotting. And this is probably the most common side effect that we have to help women deal with. Um, there are a lot of different ways to deal with it, um, and it sort of depends on the individual patient. The most common reason that women will have breakthrough bleeding on these regimens is that their lining becomes so atrophic and unstable that they just bleed spontaneously. And so one option would be to have uh, to take a break from the pill uh, for five to seven days, allow them to have a menstrual period. That actually allows their follicles to recruit, create some estrogen, um, uh, release some estrogen, and that thickens and stabilizes the lining. Um, for many of our patients that have severe dysmenorrhea and chronic pain, they're actually terrified of the idea of actually having a menses because that they know will exacerbate their pain. So in those patients, I'll actually often give them seven to 10 days of extra estrogen, so just ethanol estradiol, one to two milligrams a day for uh, about seven to 10 days. And most women, that will sort of stabilize their lining and allow them to continue um, in um, uh, until the next time they have breakthrough bleeding. And my general rule of thumb is, is as long as they don't do that more than three to four times a year, then that's a safe option. But if they're feeling that they need to, they keep having breakthrough bleeding every month, then I'll probably just switch the pill formulation. So now this patient comes back to you and tells you that her best friend recently had a Mirena IUD and uh, she's very happy with it. Her friend does not have endometriosis and she wants to know if the Mirena is an option for her. So would you tell her, no, Mirena is not a good option for you um, because it's contraindicated in women with endometriosis? Would you tell her, well, endometriosis is not that relevant, but you've never had any babies, and a Mirena IUD is a bad option for women who are nulliparous? Um, yes, she could use the Mirena, but should not expect an improvement in her endometriosis pain, or she can use the Mirena and will likely have an improvement in her endometriosis pain. I would say the answer is D. The levonorgestrel IUD is actually an excellent option for women um, that have a multitude of gynecologic conditions. It releases 20 micrograms of levonorgestrel per day, and it's specifically FDA approved for both contraception as well as menorrhagia. So it has a separate indication for menorrhagia, even if a woman doesn't need contraception. But there have been multiple studies that have shown that it has significant efficacy um, in dysmenorrhea as well as in women that have an, uh, proven endometriosis. Its advantages is that it's low maintenance, there's minimal side effects, it does not contain estrogen, so for women that have contraindications to estrogen or have multiple side effects from estrogen, this is an excellent option. The only thing that I would say in the small group of patients that I don't think this is probably the best option for are the ones that um, seem to be very bothered by ovulation or functional ovarian cysts. So if you look at the data, only about a third of women will not ovulate on the Mirena IUD. A third will consistently ovulate, and that's not its method of contraception. And about a third will ovulate intermittently. And so if a patient seems to be prone to having recurrent functional cysts or comes in with larger functional cysts, and um, you know that's sort of that small patient group that ends up in the ED or office all the time because of functional cysts or ovulation pain, that probably isn't the best um, option for that small group of women. But that's not an issue. I think this is a probably good option for many patients. So what about surgery? So when do we surgery? Um, this is um, my opinion, and my, maybe not everybody um, agrees with it, but this is what when I consider going to surgery. So I want to consider surgery to evaluate and treat pain that's been refractory to medical treatment, to establish a diagnosis because 
most other cases is presumptive based on symptoms. Uh, to improve or relieve symptoms in a woman that is interested in pregnancy is people are unwilling to use medical therapy, or in a case when you suspect a persistent ovarian endometrioma, three centimeters is kind of small, maybe four to five centimeters. If they have persistent mass that you're not confident about its diagnosis, then those would be uh, potential reasons. So uh, the efficacy of laparoscopy for pelvic pain associated with endometriosis has been established. There have been a couple randomized controlled trials, and this is uh, one of the very first trials that was published in 1994. Uh, they randomized 63 women with stage uh, 1 to 3 endometriosis, and they performed laser ablation ver uh, with LUNA, which stands for laparoscopic uterosacral nerve ablation, versus observation only. So they just put in the scope, they made the diagnosis, and didn't treat it. And what they found, I think there's two interesting take-home points. One is, is that there is a profound placebo effect with surgery, just as there is in many other conditions. And at three months, patients that had diagnostic laparoscopy alone actually looked just like patients that had ablation of endometriosis. But there was a significant persistent improvement in the laser group um, at six months, whereas the um, uh, non-treatment group went back up to their baseline. And about 63% of the patients improved in the laser group compared to 23%. And the mean reduction in pain was an average pain score of 8.5 prior to surgery and 4.5 after. But as just as medical therapy, recurrence after the first uh, surgery is incredibly common. This is, I know you can't see this because of this lighting, but um, what they found in this systematic review was that approximately 25% of women report recurrent pain after laparoscopy, and that the average time to recurrent pain is somewhere between one to two years. So just like medical therapy, surgery is not a cure, um, and many of these patients report um, recurrent uh, pain that actually doesn't always correspond with recurrent disease. So this patient wonders, so she has a laparoscopy, you find stage one or stage two endometriosis, you ablate it or excise it, and she um, is doing great after the surgery, and she wants to know if there's anything um, that she can do to reduce her uh, risk of um, recurrent disease. So you advise her that postoperative medical therapy uh, compared to, post, uh, to no therapy uh, decreases her pain. Is that true or false? So it's kind of like neither. So in a big uh, Cochrane review, post-surgical hormonal suppression of uh, peritoneal endometriosis did not actually show a significant benefit. Approach to benefit, the um, risk ratio was around 0.6, but the confidence interval crossed one. But what they did find is that the risks are minimal, and when you look at the time to recurrence, there was, it appeared to be a delay at which time how long that they would have uh, uh, suppressive symptoms. And so uh, most gynecologists would say, although the data is not 100% clear, the risks are low, there's probably some benefit and would recommend some type of medical suppression after laparoscopy. And so now, fast forward a couple years, this patient's now 43. She's suffered from infertility for many years, but now has two children after in vitro fertilization. She no longer wants to be on her pill because she has a lot of side effects, and she requests hysterectomy for definitive management of her long-term history of pain and endometriosis. So what do you recommend? Do you recommend a total hysterectomy, which means removal of the uterus with the cervix? Do you recommend a hysterectomy with removal of both ovaries? She could keep her cervix with or without her ovaries, or do you tell her hysterectomy is not likely to be helpful? And this is 
super common. Many women just come in and say, just take it all out. I'm done. I don't want to be on this pill. I don't want any of this and you know, expect a cure. And so unfortunately, we actually don't have a tremendous amount of data to answer this super fundamental uh, question. Um, and most women after hysterectomy are actually satisfied. So when you look at the global um, outcomes after hysterectomy, 78, 86% of women uh, undergoing hysterectomy report improvement in their symptoms. 50% report improvement in their mental health and uh, physical or social function. 60% report improvement in their dyspareunia. But this is not a risk-free surgery. There's potential for serious morbidity. Um, if this happens in young women, there's significant regret over loss of fertility. And there's also a significant risk of persistent pelvic pain. And so this was a really nice systematic review that was published in 2012 um, by Dr. Brandsborg um, in the Dana Medical Journal. And what she found um, is, first of all, there aren't a lot of studies that look at how common is pain after hysterectomy. But persistent post-operative pain, so amongst women that had pain prior to surgery, anywhere between 6.7 to 31% of women reported some level of persistent pain after surgery. And new or increased pain, so pain that they didn't have before surgery or pain that was worse after surgery, was between 1 and 15%. And so I think you can confidently tell patients that while we can guarantee that hysterectomy will stop your bleeding as long as you take out your cervix, and that if bleeding is your main symptom, then you will um, be satisfied with the surgery. But if your primary and only goal of hysterectomy is pain relief, nearly 25% of women will have a failure and will report some level of pain. It doesn't mean that they might not be improved at all, but if those odds are good enough for a patient, then I think that's important to recognize. And one thing that I didn't go through in this lecture is the benefits versus risks of taking out the ovaries. Um, I thought it wasn't within the scope of what we were going to talk about, but the bottom line is, is that there is significant risk in taking out ovaries in women, including cardiovascular disease and um, osteoporosis, and it's not clear that taking out the ovaries guarantees pain relief. And the, that it's probably a bit age-dependent, but our general practice is that as long as the ovaries look normal, I would not recommend taking out the ovaries for the sole benefit of, of um, reducing uh, recurrent pain after surgery. So what I would tell patients before considering hysterectomies, recognize that chronic pelvic pain is often multifactorial and multiple organ systems are involved. And although we can cure abnormal bleeding, pain persists in about 25% of women. And so it's really critical that we systematically treat all sources of pain before considering surgery. Um, and that all of, these can, all of these organ systems need to be adequately considered. And so if this organ disease-based diagnostic and treatment approach doesn't work, what do you do? So you treat their endometriosis, um, you treat their UTIs, you treat their vaginitis. These things don't work. What do you do? And this is, this is actually quite novel to the gynecologist's office. And so this is not some, I know that you guys are all here because you're interested in pain and you know this, but, um, but it, it should go without say that central pain amplification can lead to chronic pain in the absence of peripheral pathology. And we know that the brain and multiple centers in the brain, including the thalamus, the insula, the prefrontal cortex, the somatosensory cortex, have a profound ability to modulate pain perception, and they have the ability to either upregulate um, a pain signal and or downregulate. And in patients that have chronic pain conditions, there's ample evidence to suggest that there's dysregulation in pain modulation such that the end state 
is hyperalgesia and allodynia, which likely influences the, the pain perception for any given patient. And while that isn't so novel uh, for people that treat patients that have chronic back pain, that treat patients that have fibromyalgia, these data are actually quite novel to um, gynecologists. So these um, patients that have these, what we call central pain syndromes, they're typically characterized by, like I said, hyperalgesia and allodynia. Um, but they also have greater sensitivity to multiple sensory stimuli. And a lot of work has been done to show that it's not just um, noxious um, uh, input that they're uh, more sensitive to, but also more sensitive to sound and light stimuli. These patients often have multifocal pain. And if you ask them in detail, they have both a higher current lifetime history of pain throughout the body. And so the patients that we'll often see, they've always had dysmenorrhea, then they eventually develop some urgency and frequency bladder pain, they have recurrent headaches. I mean, all of you have seen these types of patients. Um, but it's not just the pain symptoms, they also have multiple somatic symptoms, including fatigue and memory difficulties, and um, uh, opioids don't always consistently reduce these pain symptoms. As we said previously, these conditions are more common in females. There's a strong familial genetic underpinning to these conditions, and they're often, their symptoms are often triggered or exacerbated by stressors. And women um, with chronic pelvic pain, so this is much of the work that we've done in our lab at the University of Michigan. Um, this is sort of where it's new and been difficult to sort of convince the gynecology um, colleagues of this. But women with chronic pelvic pain actually do demonstrate many of the same findings that we see in patients with other chronic pain conditions. So in one study, when we looked at peripheral hyperalgesia, these women were more sensitive to pain at a non-pelvic site compared to pain-free controls. Um, we did some brain imaging studies and looking at uh, brain volume uh, in pain regulatory regions. They had decreased gray matter volume in pain regulatory regions compared to controls. And then looking at function, they had both increased levels of excitatory neurotransmitters um, as in the anterior insula as well as increased connectivity of the insula to the medial prefrontal cortex. And one of the most interesting things that we found is that we looked at women with and without endometriosis, and we looked at women with and without chronic pelvic pain. And what we were able to demonstrate is that these findings are independent of the presence and severity of endometriosis, seeing, meaning that we found all of these findings in women that had chronic pelvic pain with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain without endometriosis. We actually had subpopulations of women with endometriosis that didn't actually have pain. As I had pointed out earlier in the um, program, about 10% of women with endometriosis don't have pain symptoms. We were able to recruit a sufficient sample, and those patients actually look just like healthy controls in, in many ways except one. Um, and so what I would say is, is that while the traditional view in gynecology is that gynecologic pain or menstrual pain is nociceptive pain that arises from uh, peripheral damage that travels through the spinal cord into the brain um, and causes chronic pain, we now have a much more sophisticated understanding of chronic pain such that we know that there is visceral-visceral sensitization and the ability of these organs to crosstalk both the bladder and bowel to the pelvis uh, a strong viscerosomatic component where there's important um, contributions of musculoskeletal pain, but also a lot of factors such as genetics, environment, early life trauma, as well as systemic influ uh, inflammation can all influence the pain experience. Um, and that pelvic pain patients are probably just as heterogeneous and complex as any other chronic pain condition. And our ability to sort of separate which are those 
um, have pain that's driven entirely by peripheral factors where simple things like birth control pills, surgery can be helpful um, versus which of those have all of these centralized factors where those types of invasive treatments might not be helpful is sort of our next goal. So in patients that have um, these um, chronic pain conditions, what I would suggest is, is that you systematically evaluate every organ system and decide what you think is relevant for that given patient. But don't forget about the central nervous system because this plays an important role in these patients just as it does in any other chronic pain condition. Look for comorbid pain conditions such as fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, headaches, Look and identify psychological disease such as depression and anxiety. And don't forget about their cognitive and psychosocial traits such as their ability to cope, their personality, any sort of maladaptive pain behaviors. Because all of these, just like any other chronic pain uh, patient, um, will influence their overall quality of life. The clinical evaluation is very similar to any other chronic pain condition. Um, we um, at the International Pelvic Pain Society have a freely available um, patient intake form that you're, anyone is welcome to use, but the general concept is the same. What is the character, the duration, uh, the location of the pain, exacerbating, relieving factors, and associated symptoms? In terms of the exam, I'm not going to go through this in detail because one of our other speakers is going to review uh, the exam in more detail in, in later uh, lectures. But what I would say is one thing that we do differently as gynecologists that care for women that have pelvic pain is that we do a very detailed musculoskeletal exam, not because we're physical therapists, but because I actually find that physical therapists cure and treat our patients far better than we can. Um, and so at least I sort of see myself as a person that can screen patients for musculoskeletal disorders, myofascial pain, and if I identify them, report, uh, refer them to PT and or PM&R, whoever's appropriate for that given patient. Um, we don't go straight to the bimanual exam. I often don't even do a speculum exam unless um, it's indicated in that particular um, patient. And the, the real um, goal is to really understand and put together an um, idea of what you think is going on. What is the pattern of pain? Is it diffuse or is it focal in one region? Is there anything that you can do on your exam that reproduces the pain symptoms? And if so, are you reproducing their daily pain? Are you reproducing their menstrual pain? Are you reproducing their pain with intercourse? And then is there an anatomic pathology that corresponds to their pain symptoms? And if you can find anatomic pathology that corresponds to those symptoms, then you treat that. And if then that doesn't get better, you have to go back to the drawing board. The other thing that I would say is don't miss rare forms of disease. These aren't common things, um, but they, are, they certainly can uh, be seen, and we, we certainly see them in our referral practice. So, for example, you can get abdominal wall endometriosis. Um, this is probably most commonly seen in women that have had multiple cesarean sections. So if somebody comes in and says, I have this pain right here, and my C-section scar is not often right in the C-section scar. It could be several centimeters away. That comes every month with my period. I feel a little knot here. Patients will often get sent up for this big workup for hernia or desmoid tumor, but uh, abdominal wall endometriosis is actually not that uncommon, and that's something that should be considered. Um, when I do a speculum exam in patients that have dyspronia or pain with uh, intercourse, especially with deep penetration. One thing that I'm also always careful to look for, and I've seen a lot of patients 
that have had multiple exams and no one's noticed that they have endometriosis in their vagina. It's actually can be somewhat subtle if you don't know what you're looking for, but what the most common location will be in the rectovaginal septum. So between the rectum and vagina, and if it goes through and into the vagina, you'll see these small sort of red um, nodules between the back of the cervix and the top of the vagina. And so you actually have to specifically place your speculum posterior to the cervix. This one, you can sort of see the cervix, but I would put the blades posterior to the cervix open there, and so that you're actually elevating the cervix and then looking in the rectovaginal septum if you're disease. Um, imaging is not always helpful. We'll all often see patients that have already had a ton of imaging, um, and so we we don't necessarily um, repeat it, but the types of things that I think about is that if a patient has an, an axial mass or tenderness, it will always start with an ultrasound. Anybody who's obese where you don't, you're not confident in your exam will get an ultrasound. Rarely um, will I get MRI or colonoscopy, but this will happen if a patient has painful bowel movements, rectal bleeding, rectovaginal nodule, and then consider some type of CT imaging or cystoscopy in patients that have hematuria or flank pain. Um, indications for laparoscopy were reviewed. Um, it's to diagnose endometriosis or evaluate an adnexal mass. But you should keep in mind that 30 to 50% of scopes for pelvic pain are negative. Um, and an initial multidisciplinary therapy is, is superior to going to straight laparoscopy alone. Um, and then I would always try hormonal suppression in patients that have cyclic pain um, before going to surgery. Uh, red flags um, hopefully are obvious to most people in this uh, room, but if a patient has uh, weight loss, blood in their stool, new pain symptoms, you know, after menopause, I would not jump to things like endometriosis or the, these other types of things that we've been talking about. Um, and then finally, we'll just briefly say that the clinical implications of central changes um, uh, in these patients are really actually not that different than any of your other patients that have fibromyalgia or headaches. These conditions co-occur, uh, chronic overlapping conditions co-occur, and in women that have endometriosis or chronic pelvic pain, they are far more common to have painful bladder, vulvodynia, fibromyalgia, and many other chronic pain conditions. Um, and that this, uh, we, we think that this might suggest an underlying common pathophysiology. Um, the other thing that I would like to point out is that these patients respond differently to therapies than patients that are probably peripherally uh, driven. They're less likely to respond to peripherally directed therapies, and they're, even when you do surgery, they're more likely to experience both acute and chronic pain after surgery. And that, like any other chronic pain condition, there are many overlapping ways to lead to chronic pain. So in any given patient, it could be a various combination of peripheral stimuli, HP, uh, hypothalamic pituitary, adrenal access changes, inflammation, immune changes, um, et cetera. And so any given patient is, uh, in pelvic pain is just as complex as any other. Um, I would argue that treating early to prevent transition from chronic to from acute to chronic pain is critical in this population, just it is, as it is in any other pain population. Um, and it's not that I don't offer surgery or that I don't offer medical treatment. We definitely begin with these gold standard therapies for contributing factors such as hormonal suppression, physical therapy, laparoscopy. But when standard treatments fail, and this isn't really the audience that I have to tell this to, but it is not uncommon at all for us as gynecologists to see patients that have had six, seven, ten laparoscopies 
once a year as if they were sort of getting some kind of oil change, and they come in for their 11th laparoscopy, and you're like, that's it, you know, no more surgery for you. We need to treat you um, in a different way. So reconsider the diagnosis, reevaluate psychosocial variables, and consider treating centralized pain. And a multidisciplinary approach um, is, is absolutely critical. Um, I'm not going to go through these because this is sort of what you guys all know. Dual reuptake inhibitors, anticonvulsants can be very helpful. There's not a lot of data specifically in chronic pelvic pain, and much of what we do is extrapolated from other pain conditions. Um, but that these patients often, um, not only do they have symptoms of pain and fatigue, but they have significant functional consequences of their symptoms, including distress, decreased activity, poor sleep that exacerbates their pain. So dually focused treatment that uses both pharmacologic therapies as well as non-pharmacologic therapies such as exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy is absolutely critical. Now let's sort of skip through this. Uh, um, neuromodulation is becoming increasingly common in patients that have chronic pain. Our physical therapists have been using TENS units for quite some time, but um, increasing in the literature now sort of uh, supports the use of PTNS, which stands for percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. And there's um, some data to suggest that maybe some forms of transcranial magnetic stimulation and direct current stimulation um, might be helpful. And there are some very small studies that have looked at this in a chronic pelvic pain population. Um, and then finally, what I would say is that one size never fits all. Um, this is not a new theme to this audience, but certainly to our gynecologists. And that what I, you know, what our mission is, you know, to tell gynecologists is that if you have sort of focal vision just in the pelvis and you have a patient that looks like this, these are the people that will often get better with the usual treatments that we're trained to give as gynecologists. But many of our patients show up looking like this, but we don't ask them about this, and they don't get better, and they go on and on and see, and see multiple, multiple physicians. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and end there, and this is, um, for anyone that knows me, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, but I think this is one of my favorite quotes from the movies, and it directly applies to any of our patients. Um, of course, it's happening inside your head, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? And I think it's really an important take-home message for these patients as well as any of our other patients that the patients come to us and say, my doctor said my pain is on my head, and it's really up to us to sort of educate them as to what we mean that, you know, we're not saying that they're malingering or that they're making up their pain, but they're a true neurobiological disease of centralized pain that can be contributing to their symptoms, and that's what we need to treat and not keep doing surgery or keep, you know, um, doing interventional procedures that may no longer be helpful. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there, I think. Um, I'm definitely welcome to take questions if you have any. Yes? So, so the question was is that um, in her practice, a lot of patients have trauma with childbirth as well as a history of sexual abuse and physical trauma. Um, and I would say that we certainly ask about that. Um, the studies 
um, are fairly consistent that the incidence of at least physical and sexual abuse in a pelvic pain population is higher than what we think in the average population. Um, we always screen for it. We always offer counseling for patients that have it and sort of consider it as part of a contributing factor. Um, I don't think it sort of takes away, though, from still looking through a multi-system approach, you know, identifying if and when they have endometriosis or musculoskeletal pain or other painful um, conditions. And so I, I like to be aware of it, but I also don't want patients to sort of walk away and s sort of think that because I was abused that they think this is all just from the abuse and there's nothing, nothing for me to do. So it's sort of that, that fine line. Yeah, so I mean, so we, I, I mean, I'm referral only like in a university setting, and I would say in our population, it probably approaches 50 to 60 percent. Yeah. I don't see as much, though, birth trauma. That's definitely um, probably a little bit more closely linked to conditions like vulvodynia and vestibulodynia and pelvic floor issues, and it just doesn't happen to be things that's referred to me in my clinic, but, but we definitely see that in general as gynecologists. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. So the question is, is what I guess what is the abnormal versus normal menstrual pain? And I would say that any patient whose pain does not get better with NSAIDs or their pain is causing a decrease in their ability to function deserves evaluation. And it's not that we find anatomic pathology in all those patients because many of them will still just have what's defined as primary dysmenorrhea or pain that's not related to any type of anatomic pathology, but there's still a lot of treatments treatments for it. Um, I, I know that, that prevalence data is, is very confusing, and you know, we've looked at that literature, and in many of it, it's much of the wide variability is across different countries and sort of cultural norms as to what patients report. Um, but it, the numbers get lower if you exclude it to women who's had pain enough that it interferes with their function. Those numbers are like 10 to 25 percent. But close to 90 percent of women will report pain with their periods. So I would say if it's not better with NSAIDs and it's affecting their ability to function or their quality of life, they, they should be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the question is, is do we use any adjunctive therapies like acupuncture? Absolutely. I, I definitely think Dr. Witzman is going to be talking about that later today. Um, but absolutely, I mean, as you sort of move into these treatments, the evidence is, becomes more sparse. But 
I would say the risk is minimal to none, and so if patients can afford it, then I absolutely encourage it. But yeah, so we, we do, I mean, there have been studies actually recently published in yoga and exercise in chronic pelvic pain that support its use both in chronic pelvic pain as well as dysmenorrhea, um, but, um, and some in acupuncture and acupressure as well, so I think they're all things that are, are worth trying. It's just a, a different patient population, and I think a woman uh, will often see that patients are sort of in a different state before they're willing to try it. I think a lot of what we see, at least as gynecologists, is that I want an anatomic explanation for my pain. And, you know, I don't want to do all these other things. I just want to take a pill or have a surgery and be done with it. And that's sort of the, one of the biggest barriers that we face, and maybe that's in part because I'm a you know, work just in a referral, you know, center, so sort of the extreme patients. But, but, um, but if I can get a patient to be willing to do that, I absolutely support it.